On the Record with Gavin Riley. Sunday morning at 11. Brought to you by PwC, a dedicated private business team built around you. It all adds up to the new equation on News Talk. Bit of variety on the front pages of the papers today. Uh, we'll start with the Sunday Times. Uh, Tonishta stokes up tensions with the Kremlin is the headline there. Russia is targeting Michal Martin, the Tonishta, through official channels over his plan to review Ireland's national security policy, leading to concerns in Moscow, or rather that Moscow, may use hybrid tactics to undermine the government and state. Um, hostilities worsened yesterday when the Russian embassy openly attacked Martin for supporting Irish people who travelled to Ukraine to fight. Moscow's initial frustration with Martin is understood to be prompted by his decision to set up a consultative forum on international security policy, which is due to take place in June. It's expected to result in a significant policy shift on Irish security and defence, although the state will continue to remain neutral. Um, The threat posed by Russia, we're told in this piece by the Sunday Times, is expected to dominate the forum as the nation is now considered by military and security services to pose a significant risk to Ireland's security interests. Russia is actively engaged in espionage on Irish soil and sowing dissent by supporting fringe political organisations that support terrorism and right-wing extremism, military sources told the Sunday Times. Russia's security services have increased their activities in Ireland, including collecting intelligence and are targeting government agencies and state institutions through espionage, uh, is the quite striking story on the front page of the Sunday Times. Uh, On a related note, um, the Mail on Sunday also leads with a similar story about interjections between Micheál Martin and the Russian embassy. Yeah, but they lead with the statement from the family of an Irishman who was killed fighting in Ukraine, who last night rejected controversial comments made by the Russian ambassador, Yuri Filatov, that he had been a victim of Irish government propaganda. In a statement to the Irish Mail on Sunday, Finbar Kafferke's grieving brother column said that Finbar stood against all forms of imperialism, be it US, British or Russian, and was strongly opposed to Ireland's support for US troops and any move towards joining NATO. And Mr. Kafferke, who's originally from Ackle Island, was killed fighting Russian forces in eastern Ukraine. His family issued the statement after the unprecedented diplomatic row prompted by comments made by the uh, Russian embassy after Michal Martin had paid tribute to Kafferke, who he described as being a man of clear principles. Those comments appear to have incensed the Russian ambassador, Yuri Filatov, who on Friday night issued a bizarre statement, the paper calls it, accusing the government and media of promoting anti-Russian propaganda, distorting the truth about the conflict in Ukraine and misleading people like Finbar Kafferke. However, Mr Kafferke's family last night rejected any suggestions that he was an unwitting victim of propaganda and they said that he died fighting for what he believed in. Um, the front page of the Sunday Independent, firm in Donoghue Posters Row got €68 million Euro from the state. Uh, you might remember uh, the controversy a few months ago involving Pascal Donoghue and previously undisclosed political donations in kind from the businessman Michael Stone. Um, well, his company, the designer group um, has received 67.5 million in state contracts in the last five years according to the Sun Independent Sippo is still investigating Donoghue's links to the businessman uh, who used his company to erect campaign posters for the minister during the last two elections in January as we will all remember Pascal Donoghue was forced to address the doll on the controversy and Mr Stone desi- uh, resigned from his positions on the North Inner City Task Force and the Land Development Agency now new figures which have been provided in response to a parliamentary question by Matty McGrath uh, reveal that the company received nearly 64 million euro last year after winning a government tender for work on the State Laboratory and Forensic Science Ireland campus in Kildare. Um, worth stressing, of course, for the record, that the Department of Public Expenditure says that Minister Pascal Donoghue has no role in uh, awarding these or any other government contracts. Uh, the Minister has submitted the relevant documentation, uh, documentation and info to SIPO as requested. 
And that parliamentary question was responded to by Pascal, uh, Patrick O'Donovan, rather, who is the junior minister at that department responsible for the OPW, not by Pascal Donoghue himself. Uh, finally, for now, uh, briefly, the front page of the Business Post, there's a new Red Sea opinion poll. Party-wise, it's basically all unchanged, pretty much exactly as it was last month. Um, however, perhaps more interesting, just over a third of voters believe that Sinn Féin can solve the housing crisis if it gets into power after the next election. Just 36% of people believe that Sinn Féin and government can solve the crisis in what the paper says is a major blow to the party a far larger share of voters 46% don't believe that Sinn Féin can solve the housing crisis while 17% don't know um, Mary Lou MacDonald and Owen O'Brien have repeatedly accused the government of having failed to tackle the housing crisis but despite the finding MacDonald's party remains the most popular party in the state and remains the favourite to lead the next government and almost half of all voters believe that she can do a good job if she becomes the next Taoiseach in a sign that she remains the party's biggest electoral asset that's your potted tour of what's on the front pages of this morning's newspapers. We're joined in the studio to go through uh, those stories and more by Michelle Murphy, who is a research and policy analyst at Social Justice Ireland, and by Peter Leonard, a barrister who also presents the Fifth Court podcast, uh, which you'll be able to find anywhere you get your audio online. Uh, good morning to you both. Uh, one story that doesn't directly make um, any of the front pages, but which is still covered quite extensively inside the papers, um, is the fallout of Micheál Martin's remarks in the Dáil Chamber on Thursday lunchtime, where he had a bit of a go at the ditch for the extent of its reporting but not alone for its reporting for what he believed as its ultimate motivations uh, by implication the motivations of um, its founders and general benefactors um, Peter there's quite a lot on that front uh, inside the papers what jumped out for you today? Yeah well there's the, there is an awful lot about it uh, and all the papers are covering it in detail uh, I mean it's interesting that it's a sort of a mixed bag I mean I think a lot of people are saying that you know holding power to account which is what the ditch has done to a certain extent in, in terms of of, there have been a number of high-profile political casualties as a result of their research and what they have published, etc. But on the other hand, um, you know, Mihol Martin used his opportunity in the doll, I suppose, to to have a go back uh, and and to sort of reject what he believed was a campaign against, I suppose, his party and and Fine Gael. Now, there's two views in relation to that. The NUJ came out immediately and said that that is wrong. Mm-hmm. You shouldn't use doll privilege in order to make uh, a challenge uh, on people who are entitled to freedom of expression mm. and are entitled to, you know, issue findings which have had a significant impact and have held, you know, the state and government to a certain extent to account. On the other hand, you have Gary Murphy, a professor of politics in DCU, saying, well, look, you know, Micheál Martin is entitled to use Doyle, uh, the Doyle, uh, in order to make those comments and to sort of address what he believes is an attack on government. And if you, if you look at Doyle privilege, what is it for? You know, to a certain extent, it is where the government feels that it needs to make, uh, you know, a, a certain statement and mm. has been given that allowance under the Constitution. So, I mean, it, it's kind of an interesting one. Yeah. But is there so the, obviously the, there is a reason why doll privilege exists, as you say, but ordinarily in, in the, the almost 10 years that I've been covering the, the business of doll air in full time. Usually whenever anyone begins to start using privilege or to start making allegations about somebody who is outside the chamber, they usually immediately warrant an intervention from the Count Corla who says, hang on, you have your privilege, but you're not supposed to talk about those who are not here in the chamber to answer back for themselves. Yes. And I thought it was quite fascinating, actually, that this week that um, the Count Corla, the last Count Corla, whoever it was that was in the chair at the time, did not see fit to say, hang on, you're bringing in Paddy Cosgrave and you're bringing in Shea Bowes now yes. and you're attacking people who don't have the immediate right of reply. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think that's a very good point. I mean, it's it's it maybe it is surprising that that happened, um, and I suppose it shows kind of a vulnerability on the part of the government that they felt so exercised that they had to make such a personalised attack. Um, 
But dare I say it, um, it is a case where I suppose the government felt that they wanted to kind of repel the comments that were made and they used that opportunity. But I mean, it is the case, as as the National Union of Journalists have said, Mm. that I mean, it is Doyle privilege is being potentially abused in this way, in the sense that people are being attacked who don't have a right of reply. Um, Though they did go to the the airwaves and they were well able to defend themselves and vindicate the approach that they have taken. They did. Uh, Seamus Dooley, the Irish Secretary of the NUJ, said that the comments were an unwelcome and unedifying departure. Uh, it is an unwelcome and unedifying departure from normally from normal parliamentary procedure, uh, he said in a statement. It is inevitable that there will be profound disagreements between those who exercise power and those who seek to hold them to account. Journalists who criticise or challenge public figures can accept criticism. Media organisations across all platforms are not above scrutiny and are capable of responding robustly to criticism. Journalists and publishers understand the tension that exists in a democracy between the media and government. A diverse, challenging media is important and in Ireland we're fortunate to have a range of media across all platforms. Forms. Um, it is not acceptable for politicians to make criticism under dull privilege against named individuals. The media operates within the constraints of extremely restrictive defamation laws. Politicians who want to challenge the accuracy, efficacy or bona fides of any journalist should do so within the same constraints and without the protection of a privilege, said Seamus Dooley. Uh, we did, by the way, approach um, Seamus Dooley or a number of other uh, people who could speak about the principle of journalism rather than the practice of journalism if they could uh, join us. Um, nobody available to do so because that as happens this weekend is also the weekend of the NUJ's uh, annual conference um, taking okay. place in Britain so that a lot of them were, were tied up and unable to join us. Um, but worth just noting, by the by, uh, because I want to address it because there was a lot of criticism coming into News Talk uh, during these hours last Sunday uh, about our um, inability to cover uh, Collins at the time and the allegations that had been raised by the ditch. Um, worth just stressing again those lines from Seamus Dooley. The media operates within the constraints of extremely restrictive defamation laws. And suffice to say, um, the ditch obviously felt that they had evidence to make assertions about Niall Collins and uh, alleging an element of lawbreaking on his behalf. That was based on documentation that no other media outlet had or was able to get hold of until early of last week. Certainly no one else had them last Sunday. And this outlet or any other uh, would need to tread very carefully if one were to repeat allegations of uh, lawbreaking by anybody, let alone a minister. Uh, without having the same evidence to hand. Obviously, Niall Collins has commented in the meantime and it's been raised in the doll and that is what gives us the liberty now to talk about it more openly. Um, Michelle Murphy, there is, uh, as we said, there's an awful lot in the papers. Anything that jumped out for you as regards the coverage today? Well, I suppose one thing that jumped out for me was uh, you mentioned the the poll, the Red Sea poll mm. in the, the Sunday Business Post and what... what as you say, there's no real change in terms of uh, party support across the board. Interesting that voters, only 36% think Sinn Féin could resolve the housing crisis. So I think in advance of the election, they're really going to have to I put, put flesh on some of the bones of some of their policies and really explain to people how they think it will work. Mm. You're also then looking at, you know, the challenges they will face in terms of the civil service of the permanent government whatever you want to call it. And yeah. like, what are, you know, what are the long-standing obstacles there that it seems successive governments have been unable to deliver on housing and mm. now we have a, what, a 12 billion euro surplus and we still don't <laughs> seem to be able to yeah. deliver on housing. Yeah. Interesting for me is one in four Fianna Fáil voters think Mary Lou Macdonald will be a solid, strong Taoiseach. And I think really Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael will be really worried about the age profile breakdown mm. in terms of support among younger people. You've Fine Gael. Yeah, go through, go through that again for us there. So third, this is broken down on one of the pages inside yeah, the business Yeah, on page today. 16 of the business post. So if you're looking at the age profile there, Sinn Féin of 33% support among 18 to 34, Fine Gael just 13%, Fianna Fáil just 16%. Looking at 35 to 54 year olds, Sinn Féin again on 38%, Fine Gael 17%, Fianna Fáil just 11%. So for Fine 
Fall and Fine Gael, those figures should be really, really concerning mm. because yeah. they have lost ultimately that vote and I don't really see how they're going to be able to get it back between now and the election and Sinn Féin is winning the ground there. It's also kind of the, it, in terms of the regional balance, it's it's the most popular party within the regions. So it's really going to be and if you're looking at the potential review of the, or rather the potential outcomes of the review of the Boundary Commission yes, and what that means for different yeah. constituencies, you might see some more sitting mm. TDs deciding they're not going to run again from Fine Gael and potentially Fianna Fáil. But it really shows the challenge that they faced. And even with Dara O'Brien, you know, announcing more breaks, you know, more money into housing. He's probably one of the poorest performing ministers on uh, page 18 of the Business Post. They kind of um, give a a rating of all the government ministers despite that Fianna Fáil are just doing really poorly uh, among the 18 to 54 age group and that mm. should be really concerning and Fine Gael as well. I was going to have this conversation slightly later in the hour but actually just because you mentioned it there and I know that Social Justice mm. Ireland do, does mm. a more thorough job yeah. than many of going through um, exactly where public money is mm. going and the efficacy of doing that. You mentioned the government being unable to spend a lot of its money to try and address the housing mm. situation. If you do a deep dive into the public expenditure figures every month or so you'll see that often there's a capital underspend and they put that mm-hmm. down to local government have you guys ever been able to surmise any kind of explanation as to why it is that the state would set aside so much money for housing and not be and able then, to actually spend it? Well, I suppose that's and that's one of the huge challenges. And even in terms, if you break that down again and look at, just take one example, the traveller accommodation budget, you'll find across the country some local authorities haven't even spent that at all in a number different years. The same with the active transport budget. So that's for walking and cycling infrastructure. Mm. So you see that real disconnect. So it's the local authority's job to roll it out to, you know, to especially in terms of social housing, uh, the policy is set by national government. But then if you look at uh, local authorities, because we have just stopped building houses for, you know, more than a decade, they've yeah. lost a lot of that experience. So you've been relying on the private rented market, approved okay. housing bodies. So they've lost a bit of their institutional they've capability to do and that. And institutional knowledge, for example. And then I suppose we've, we've at a national level, we've been pursuing things like HAP, the housing yeah. assistance payments. So that is how, you know, for the past 15, 20 years, governments have been promoting that in terms of actually building social and cost rental or affordable housing. So now we find ourselves in a situation and it it ties into actually on the front page of the Business Post, um, Gavin, there's an article by Daniel Murray and the President's remarks about economists. um, Do do you mind actually if if I get you to to park on that because I want to come back on that but actually I want to sort of make it a a talking point in its own right rather than feeling like it's kind of just being being shoved into anywhere else. Absolutely. Uh, A couple of texts that are still coming in about actually about the main findings of the poll. Um, Thing is, Gavin, I don't believe that Sinn Féin can solve the housing crisis but I do believe that they will try says that one texter and I'm willing to give them the chance to do so um, Joe in Limerick meanwhile says I'd love to know how many people believe that the existing government parties can solve the housing crisis was that question asked in the Red Sea poll I would like to know that uh, says Joe in Limerick which maybe begs a question Peter that people may, now I'm, I'm only surmising here now but maybe people have already lost faith in the present government to be able to fix things and therefore the question is could Sinn Féin do any better which which almost gives the present government something of a carte blanche that it, it's kind of a, a an 
almost like a no win no fee sort of thing where like if they can try and solve the housing crisis and if they do it's a bonus and if they don't then it's the same underwhelming performance that everyone anticipates well yeah so well you can look at it either way I mean in, in the sense that people have just maybe given up on the government being able to solve this issue I mean so the various different initiatives that they release and that they talk about and discuss and say this is the new approach we're going to take and it's going to succeed mm. the public aren't really buying that but I thought it was really interesting that for all the you know the the, the high profile that Ona Bryn has had and the, the Sinn Féin emphasis on we will solve the housing problem mm. a lot of people out there are saying well you know what we don't really expect Sinn Féin to be able to do it either now that doesn't mean that people aren't well disposed towards Sinn Féin as we can see they are the, the biggest party in the country according to the opinion polls mm. on 31% but it's almost like people are sort of even giving Sinn Féin in advance a pass that you know what maybe you won't be able to solve it either because it's such a difficult difficult issue to solve yeah. I would have thought when she, if Sinn Féin get into power if they do get into power if the election is held next year or the following year um, there will be a, you know a lot of pressure on them to deliver something in relation to housing because it has been so fundamental to their politics over the last yes. while and why they say they should be in power and why they should be they, they should be administering the country but it is interesting that people are saying well you know maybe we feel that they will do a better job in relation to housing mm. but we're not expecting you guys to solve everything and to, to kind of you know it's going to be utopia and all the housing issues are going to be addressed which I think gives Sinn Féin a bit of a pass in that regard Yeah in a way and I'm pretty sure actually that I've seen Owen O'Brien comment before that it would probably take Sinn Féin two terms in government if they were granted them to be able to achieve everything they want to so maybe this isn't all that much of a disappointment to Sinn Féin maybe this only reflects exactly what they already thought um, and maybe chiming with, with your opinion just now Peter um, another texter um, 087-1400-106 by the way for your WhatsApps Sinn Féin may not be able to solve the housing issue but what they do know is that the Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, uh, parties haven't been able to do it for the last 10 years and prior to that they made a mess of it during the Celtic Tiger um, which I think possibly chimes uh, quite well with what Peter just said um, interestingly by the by uh, on that Red Sea poll Michelle um, and this, this chimes with the findings of I think a previous poll that the, the Sunday Independent had done as well uh, when polled as to whether the decision to end the evictions ban on tenants was a good idea or not 36% of people say they support it and 46% of people don't now I think from memory those are exactly the same figures mm-hmm. that the Sindo had found but moreover that it does reflect the idea that the public opinion on this is not as cut and dried in favour of one side as people might think No it's not and I suppose it reflects that there are still despite the coverage of I suppose the institutional landlords there's still quite a lot of small landlords mm. out there and I suppose it reflects that and it also reflects the fact that if you are in secure accommodation well then the eviction ban doesn't impact on you you know so you're you have the the luxury of being able to yeah. think of it conceptually rather than what it means exactly. for you on the ground you have the if you're in secure accommodation secure housing then you know it's not an immediate is- issue for you and you know you maybe you'll probably think of it more broadly I do think you know, if the 1st of May is tomorrow and that's when the next round of um, those eviction notices are going to start kicking in. Mm. I think if you consistently see we've, what is it, I think, is it 200 families have been in homelessness or I actually think it's more for more than two years. Well, wow. If you keep seeing those figures rise, particularly children, I think you might see this change. We'd say if you, they did this poll again in September, October. Mm. But, you know, I do think it shows, I suppose, the more nuanced element of that argument and that debate but it also shows as well that this is an issue that really impacts those particularly in insecure rented accommodation but it doesn't impact a whole lot of other people which also does make the housing issue I suppose it has a huge impact on a part of the population but another part of the population it doesn't Mm. but certainly going back to your point it would certainly take two terms of office of any 
government to try and really get to grips with housing. I think that will be the challenge for Sinn Féin, even to build homes because they've really been targeting renters yes. and support among renters. But if you're going to increase the supply of housing, that takes time. Well, like you say, if you think mm-hmm. that the local authorities are going to be the ones that are actually mm-hmm. getting their fingers dirty on the ground and they've yeah. lost the capacity to do it, then mm-hmm. no central government can certainly just flip on the switch mm-hmm. uh, overnight. Uh, one final text uh, from Jimmy, which proves that our listeners are quite a diverse bunch. Uh, if that's the percentage of people who think that Mary Lou will be a good Taoiseach, then this country is in bigger trouble than I thought. Uh, keep your diversity of opinions coming to 87 106 uh, lots of texts coming in about Micheál Martin's uh, attack on the ditch and whether it was warranted or not, whether he's playing the man instead of the ball. Uh, we'll get to all of those when we're back with Michelle and Peter after this. Um, as I said, a couple of texts coming in about Micheál Martin's approach to the ditch um, in the Dáil in the last uh, couple of days. Um, it's not comments that were made by the ditch website, says Chris and Carlo, who I, who I think is taking issue with my explanation for, for our inability to cover it last week. Uh, it's not comments that were made, it's facts that were found. The Taunters' attack in the Dáil was disgraceful, playing the man instead of the ball. Uh, somebody else says, media is rarely completely neutral. Uh, I've just lost the text now for a second. There it is. Uh, Media is rarely completely neutral. In the US, Fox News have a staunch pro-Trump agenda. And in the UK, the Telegraph have a strong pro-Tory and pro-Brexit agenda. It's naive to think that Ireland is immune to that sort of political media, says Colm. Which is kind of what what struck me so so much about what uh, Micheál Martin had to say in the Dáil, uh, Michelle, that he was acting as if um, media outlets that have their own stated purpose namely in this instance to, you know, investigate and call out what they see as corruption and that the government parties are generally more more akin to that or are more guilty of it as they see it. Like, what what's wrong with that? Particularly if the substance of the stories that they're publishing end up holding water and are born out to be true. And I think that that's where he's going to get himself into difficulty because what is wrong with that? I mean, the ditch is not the only organisation to do that. If you look at the Phoenix, for example, yeah. it's been doing it mm. for decades, you know, yeah. you know, Very holding true. it to account. What I think, I think the challenge is going to be, I'm sure every single party and every single TD now is going back through their records over time to make absolutely sure there's nothing in there. Because the thing is, what the, what the Ditch have found is they've done freedom of information. So everything they've, you know, they've found, it, it it's accurate. Then mm. it's up to you to infer whether someone or was or was not engaged in 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 some form of wrongdoing, and obviously, their agenda is as they see it to hold this particular type of power to account. Yeah. And I don't really see what what the issue with that is. And I think then if you start to challenge that, as Peter said under under dull privilege, and you you read out the statement from from Seamus Dooley there, then I think you are in you know rather challenging territory because even if you look back for example there was the issue of the posters element and Pascal Donoghue mm. which was you know the entire news agenda a couple yeah. of months ago then after that we had an expose in the Irish Times of Sinn Féin and their election returns yes, that's right, yeah. and which was stated clearly in the Irish Times at the time that a lot of that information came from a, a, I think a I'm paraphrasing here, a forensic account who had declared themselves as a Fine Gael supporter. Mm. But the Irish Times is very clear about mm. that in the article. Yeah. So, you know... Doesn't matter, I, if, it doesn't matter what your motives are, if mm-hmm. what, you're, what you're complaining exactly. about is true, yeah, then so that's they, fine. As yeah. long as the, the, the motives or the agenda is clear. So I think that is where he's going to find himself in real difficulty. Yeah. Do you th- um, what was interesting, Peter, is that I, I know that Michal Martin was then speaking to reporters in Cork again on Friday and uh, was asked to kind of stand over everything that he said in the Dáil Chamber on Thursday. And he repeated all of it 
save for the bits that he put on record about Che Bowes, who was yes. one of the original co-founders of the Ditch, Absolutely. and has since become a commentator on the Russian state international TV channel RT. Well, that was his that was his attack mechanism. That was yeah. the way he was out to get them. Because I mean, there is a there is a huge public interest in publishing the information that the Ditch has found. Mm. Now. They do seem to be kind of a, a single issue organisation. They're going after, you know, government ministers. Mm. Uh, and they, they have uh, they have gone after or they have reported things about the uh, Sinn Féin's finance director and some of his land holdings before. So it's not yes. universally. So politicians generally. OK. Yeah. And, and in fairness, there is there is a huge public interest in what they do in finding out issues. Now, I think I think sometimes the issue is there are gradations of wrongdoing. And sometimes these these stories become absolutely colossal. And then when you kind of bore into them, um, you know, there is an issue here. There is an issue that people have to account for. And I think the problem in the Doyle was that Niall Collins was asked to take questions. That's what mm. the opposition par- po- politicians wanted. Uh, and Micheál Martin, they kind of denied the opposition politicians that, that opportunity and then went on the attack mm. uh, against the ditch, which I think was an error because I think everybody should be accountable for what they do. Mm. But I think there are gradations of wrongdoing. And when you bore into it what Niall Collins did, yes, there's an issue there. Yes, he probably should have recused himself mm. when he was at that meeting. But, I mean, does it go to the level where, as a junior minister, he's required to resign? Personally, I don't think so. I heard some other high-profile opposition politicians saying, well, that's not what we're after. We're not after a head in this case. Mm. Uh, we're but, after but, answers. Yeah, we're yeah. after answers and we're after accountability. And I think the refusal to go on the record and answer questions, answer questions. I mean, if he if he was involved as a councillor back in the day and he did something, tell the public what he did and let people judge, mm. you know. But, but attacking, I suppose, the organisation that brought this to the attention of the public, and it is very much in the public interest, is good. Uh, and as you said, you asked me a question there about Micheál Martin being very cautious when he was outside the Doyle yes. in terms yeah. of what he said. Um, yeah, it was this kind of a Russian association. That was that was the attempt to blacken this mm. organisation, which has brought information that is very much in the public interest to light. Mm. Some, somebody who was effectively what it boiled down to, somebody who was involved in the ditch at its onset has since become an opponent of the Western view on the war in Ukraine and therefore that you should perhaps, um, you know, approach its own reporting with caution, which is... Uh, an, an interesting link to draw where whether people think it holds water is an interesting one um, Maeve Sheehan has done an interesting piece on page 6 of the Sunday Independent today in which she parses a little bit of the language um, that Micheál Martin had used uh, that he said that there had been an orchestrated um, campaign uh, or alleged that there had been an orchestrated campaign somehow instigated by the ditch to demand that the government keel over and grant a question and answer session in the Dáil. Um, this, there is a political organisation attacking the government and wanting to undermine confidence in it. That's what's going on here, so we are entitled to respond. I am fully cognisant of what is going on here and I see this now through a totally different prism. I see how all of this is being organised and set up by people who are very clear in their campaign against me and my party. Now, the inference there, certainly, albeit perhaps not explicitly drawn, was that all of the online commentary and and I was something of a sort of a collateral victim of it last week with the demands to, to explain why we weren't covering it. I think I've already addressed that. Um, Michael Martin acknowledged so too indirectly in the Dáil Chamber on Thursday. Um, but what he was suggesting was that any campaign to demand questions and answers was uh, somehow some kind of orchestrated political campaign. And moreover, that he suggested that opposition TDs like Holly Cairns and, and Paul Murphy, who were joining in in that chorus for calls, were somehow they were doing the ditches bidding that rather than looking for accountability because accountability was the right thing to look for that they were actually unwitting victims of this propaganda propaganda campaign being smeared or being run by the ditch and its co-founders which to me seemed I've got to choose my words carefully 
fanciful, Michelle? Yes, I mean, this is our national chamber. These are elected representatives. And you or I or Peter, unless we meet Noel Collins on the street, we're not going to be able to question him about this. You have elected representatives, publicly elected representatives, and that is their job. Mm. You know, that is their role. And you can't have it one way or another. You know, you can't expect people to appear before Oireachtas committees, for example, and be questioned. And Robert Watt is just a recent, very prime example. Questioned legitimately yeah. on things uh, on the one hand. And then on the other hand, you had Leo Racker saying the doll is now a kangaroo court, that you can't question anyone. And you have Michal Martin saying, you know, that people shouldn't have to ask questions. And then later on that day, you have members of his party saying, well, you know, Mary Lee MacDonald and Sinn Féin, for example, should be questioned in the doll on, you know, um, links to Jonathan Gowdall, etc, etc. It's like you can't have it both ways. You can't have your cake and eat it. It's it's our national chamber. It's where elected representatives are held to account. It's where government is held to account by opposition and opposition is held to account by the government. And that is the way it works. I think to imply that somehow there is an orchestrated campaign against, I suppose, Fianna Fáil in particular, but government ministers. We're in the middle of a housing crisis. We've had a housing and homelessness crisis for more than a decade. That is why there's such public interest in this, because mm. the majority of the claims thus far have related to land deals, housing, getting planning permission, for example. So you have the, all this permeating a situation where people can't afford rent in Dublin, people can't afford rent alongside around the country. Single people effectively have been pushed out of the housing market. You're never going to be able to get a home. That is why there's such public interest in it. For him to dismiss that and then to dismiss the fact that, dismiss the um, request that someone take questions in the doll, I think, mm. you know, it's not going to play well in the long term, especially if you're looking, if you look at that age profile then in the poll, yeah. you're asking 18 to 54 year olds, you're telling them, do you know, we're not actually accountable. And that organisation, you know, was run through some nefarious means mm. and we don't need to account course, for the decisions course, we make at local government they, they, or national they, but they, level. They would say being willing to come into the doll chamber and to make a statement is accountability, that they just don't think the questions are warranted. Well, I mean, you could certainly argue that if the questions were warranted for other junior ministers well, and DGs, yeah. why weren't they warranted for Niall Collins? I think that is the issue. And I think Maeve Sheehan does outline that in her article. Mm. There's, there's a very interesting piece in the Sunday Independent. There's a letter on the inside page from the editor, Alan English, where he feels obliged, maybe it's a little bit like yourself, Gavin, talking about last week, etc., uh, where he feels he has to come out and sort of defend the integrity of the newspaper in the sense that, you know, there's a, there's a suggestion that, you know, the ditch is doing the work that the established media and the main mainstream media should mm. be doing. You know, it's, it, it's so, so everybody feels a little bit under attack, I think, as a, as a result of this. I mean, at the end of the day, the object of journalism, and you know this better than any of us, is to push things to the limit. Get good, say what you can. Um, you know, Seamus Dooley made the point about the defamation laws being extremely kind of onerous within mm. the Irish jurisdiction. Uh, and so therefore it's hard. So, I mean, you have to commend the ditch for what they're doing. Maybe they're putting the mainstream uh, media under pressure as well. Though, the mainstream media cover everything. As I said earlier, the ditch seems to have a particular agenda. That, that's kind of my view on it. And they seem to be going after politicians on, on a certain basis. And they're fully entitled to do that. And mm. once they can substantiate their allegations, that, that's all good. But um, it's, mm. it's, it's, it's creating debate, I suppose. Yeah. That's a good thing. Well, uh, one point that I neglected to make, by the way, and I'll, I'll leave it at this. Uh, there's plenty more to, to be uh, read in the papers about um, the ditch and Michal Martin's comments. Uh, you mentioned the, the onerous defamation laws. And I think this is a point that many people outside of the media who have never had to deal with the practicalities of defamation law don't get. If there is a statement somewhere and you are not sure whether it's true or not and you have reason to therefore to cast it with a certain level of, of healthy doubt 
and that you fear that it may be defamatory, you can't draw attention to it. You can't say, oh, there's a piece on the ditch which may be defamatory or there's interesting allegations there that it might be required to address. Because if it's defamatory, by drawing further attention to it, you compound the defamation and I or any outlet that it might be appearing on could then also be pursued if it turns out that the statement was wrongfully uh, accusing somebody of breaking the law when in fact they hadn't. And I think that's a point that a lot of people wondered because they may have seen, you know, how come nobody in the media is even even mentioning the fact that it's there? Whatever about following it up? How come you're not even acknowledging its existence? Well, anything that points people towards material which may be defamatory is in itself defamatory. And that's the, the life under which media people have to live. Uh, we we discussed the, the poll uh, a couple of bits, and um, Michelle, you've already uh, pointed out some of the the Finnegale exodus and, and what what might be also coming um, in light of the the redrawing of the constituency boundaries, which is due at the end of the summer. Um, there's quite a few pieces about the the exodus of backbench Finnegale TDs and whatnot in the papers, but you've you've just struck struck upon me a very interesting point, which is that if TDs are already deciding to go now, before they see the way the constituencies are going to be drawn up, then it isn't just that they think their electoral goose is cooked. There must be some deeper malaise within Fidegrail that they've decided that actually now is the time to just butt out, irrespective of even just waiting to chance their arms and see what way the constituencies might fall. Yes, I mean, that certainly seems to be the case. And if you look at the poll, like Fine Gael are, what, between 21 and 22% since um, 2020. But I suppose a lot of those TDs and... A lot of those constituencies are rural constituencies and you, you know, they're obviously getting it. They have, I think now that the housing situation is really coming home to roost, they're getting people coming to their constituency clinics and offices with, you know, with issues in terms of housing. You also have cost of living issues. You also have the element then, and I think this was very evident when the new junior ministers were announced and we had Michael Ring on the national airwaves saying that rural Ireland had been ignored Hmm. and, you know, you know, Dublin TDs were getting the, you know, those roles. So I do think you almost have a challenge, it seems to me, within the party between the traditional Fine Gael, you know, rural Fine Gael voter and then the new, more urban Fine Gael yeah. group. But either way, if you look at the age profile of support, I think they're in trouble. And I think a lot of those TDs, some of them have put in a lot of time, not all of them have, but some of they're looking at, well, they're probably looking at their potential you know, where they're going to go post-election and do you want to hang around and have a really bad election day regardless of the boundary, uh, the findings of the boundary commission Mm. or do you want to now start planning for what you're going to do by the time you, you know, you've retired your seat and what your next move is going to be? Peter? Yeah, well, it's it's, what I think is interesting about this is the amount of Fine Gael TD, well, just referred to and and the focus in the the Mail on Sunday was on Fine Gael TDs and rural Fine Gael TDs. Mm. But it is amazing how many of these TDs who are mid-career I mean, they're young people, if you know what I mean. They're yeah. like, you know, late 40s, 50, Joe McHugh, yeah. um, Brendan, John, Griffin. J- uh, Brendan Griffin, John Paul Phelan in mm. Kilkenny, um, who seemed to have Kilkenny to himself after Phil Hogan went to Europe, etc. So mm. there was there was potential there. I mean, generally getting involved in politics is representative of somebody being ambitious and wanting to succeed and wanting to get to the top and hopefully get to the cabinet table. So it, it sounds like people are kind of frustrated. They feel there's nothing in front of them. Um, maybe they're slightly worried about the ditch, kind of looking at their planning applications over the year. Who knows? Maybe maybe it's it's become very difficult to be a TD. But it's people that are still mid-career that have, you would imagine, a lot to give to public mm. life who are saying no more. And it is interesting that it seems there seems to be a focus on rural Ireland. And mm. we know there's suggestions of a rural party and all that sort of yes, stuff. I think that's yeah. worrying for Fine Gael. It's mm-hmm. very worrying because they have always had a very strong traditional rural support. Uh, and they need to hold on to that if they've any hope 
hope going forward. Uh, thank you for the very elegant forward sell because we will have Michael Fitzmaurice and Roisin Garvey debating the need for a new rural party uh, with us in the second hour today uh, on the record. Uh, before we go to an ad break, just to, to focus on the um, the fact that it's not merely rural TDs who may be opting out. Um, some of the TDs have yet to decide in this profile by John Drennan uh, on pages six and seven of the Mail on Sunday today. Um, Pascal Donoghue, current president of the Eurogroup, cabinet minister for the last uh, nine years. Rumours abound that a more, more attractive career options may be opening up for him, uh, says the piece. Uh, Richard Bruton, who has now been in Dole Aaron for 41 years, question marks around whether he'll want to run again. Um, Bernard Durkin uh, hasn't declared that he won't be declaring, but the um, hasn't declared that he won't be declaring. Those are words that I just read out. Um, but the odds are shortening. Um, still question marks around Simon Coveney because his family home has just moved constituency and he may then need to move and he may decide that that's, that's his time done. Fergus O'Dowd in Louth, Damien English in Mead West after his a high profile resignation people wondering whether he may be considering his options Frankie Fian insists he's staying but does he want to lose that perfect record of zero election defeats uh, poses the question and uh, Paul Kyo um, indignantly insists that he's staying the course but does he really want to be involved in an arm wrestling match with Verona Murphy uh, poses the piece all of that subject to that boundary commission reporting back at the end of summer and just a couple for now I've just seen that a hashtag is taking off on Twitter about the um, the fallout from the, the ditch and whatnot. Uh, the hashtag is Ditch hunt. Uh, make of that what you will. Lots more to come with Peter and Michelle. We're back after this. Perhaps at some point down the line, when the metro is picking up uh, people in Dublin Airport, when the dart to Dublin 15 and to Kildare is up and running, uh, when Cork Metropolitan Transport is operating, perhaps at that point in time, uh, when all vehicles are electric and there's no taxes coming in from petrol and diesel. Perhaps at that time there's a case for congestion charges, um, but certainly not under this government. Uh, Leo Varadkar a couple of weeks ago ruling out the idea of there being a congestion charge introduced in Dublin or other urban areas under this government. Going to be talking more about that in the second hour with uh, Conor Faulkner, transport consultant. Uh, as I said, we're also going to be hearing from Michael Fitzmaurice and Roisin Garvey about the need for a new rural party or lack thereof, uh, as Roisin believes, and Peter McVeary weighing in on the new uh, record homelessness figures all to come in the second hour, so don't go away. In the meantime, still joined in studio by Peter Leonard and Michelle Murphy to go through some of the items making the papers this Sunday. Um, Peter, understandably, uh, given the rather tumultuous seven days that it's been there's a lot of uh, follow-up pieces to last week where we were learning that a GSOC investigator had attended Jerry Hutch's um, victory party if you like uh, following his acquittal by the Special Criminal Court and a lot of follow-on today about some of the broader concerns that that raises for GSOC and the force itself Yes, absolutely I mean it's it's a bizarre story I suppose you know that, that, that a GSOC investigator ended up at a party a kind of a celebration party after Jared Hutch was released it's bizarre the, the way that information came out was all so bizarre in the sense that he apparently told his colleagues the next day, guess where I was last night? That's 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 so it's reported. Um, there is a suggestion from John Mooney, who's a very respected uh, crime and security correspondent who writes in the Sunday Times, that maybe this was him getting his retaliation in first. Maybe he'd been observed there and saying that. So who knows? But it does sound very surprising that, that somebody who was, who was charged with investigation on behalf of, of GSOC and who is a retired officer from a foreign jurisdiction mm-hmm. as, who no doubt has a very good pedigree uh, is involved in this sort of stuff. So that begs the Garda investigation then gets further into it. And and, it, and the issues in relation to GSOC and how GSOC 
is supervised and the vetting process before uh, GSOC investigators are appointed yeah. has come under scrutiny. And apparently what happens is there is a Garda vetting process. Now you would imagine that that's quite a high level, slightly more than maybe if you're you're coaching a football team yes, or something yeah, like that. Yeah. Um, but then afterwards, every year you have to self-declare whether you have any conflict of interest. Now, in this instance, mm. it is reported that the GSOC investigators would have had access, access to the investigation into the Regency attacks. Mm. Um, so they would have had access to classified Garda material, which is not surprising in itself. Yeah. But the fact that the people who are getting access to this material are not vetted to a higher degree than, you know, self-declaration de- of a conflict of interest. To me, that sounds very shocking. Yeah. And and, and there's... Sorry, no, 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 Gavin, I'll let you come no, back in there. I was just going to simply point out that it's a very cerebral thought but that it's um, it's a very difficult thing if, if you already have this question of you know who, who guards the guardians and if the guards are supervised by GSOC then you have the thing of who guards the guardians of the guards Yes, and how exactly you go about making sure that they're robust enough to be able to do that. And it's there has to be oversight, and, that, and that's very important. And GSOC, I'm sure, has done very good work. And sometimes there's a conflict between the guards and GSOC, which is reflective of the fact that the guards maybe are, you know, kept on their toes to a certain extent by GSOC. So, you know, GSOC has has served a very important uh, function in the community. But the interesting thing here is that the Helen McEntee, when she was serving as Minister of Justice, and we know she's going to return after her maternity leave, mm-hmm. um, you know, she brought in this thing called the police. Security and Community Safety Bill 2023, which again was a further oversight on Garda actions. Now, we know that Drew Harris, who was introduced as Garda Commissioner uh, by the government in a bid to bring an outsider in to sort of, you know, address maybe concerns in relation to how the Garda was was being Mm. administered. uh, He was absolutely resistant to this and said, no, this is not good. This, this, This is an interference with Garda practice that is not in the interest and will create maybe another tier of investigation into the Guards, which particularly potentially opens up an opportunity for more people to get access to Garda information mm. that is classified and very important and, in terms uh, of public safety. The original concern, so, yeah. so, so, so that's that's the issue at the moment. And as a result of this happening, I think there's going to be a pullback maybe on that piece of legislation. It's it's noteworthy that various different people are raising concerns about it now. Yeah. Um, I will just say, by the way, just on a totally separate topic before I ask Michelle if she's got anything to add on that, uh, we are getting quite a lot of um, texts and tweets this morning asking us if we're going to be covering the content of a... Uh, proposed new law in Ireland on hate speech and incitement to hatred uh, and this has gathered a particular bit of attention online because Elon Musk has weighed in on it um, online inside the last 12 hours or so and has described it as a massive attack on freedom of speech um, it's not something we can do on the hoof today but I, I think we it, it is something that warrants looking at and we might try to bookmark now that we might go back to it for next week's programme because it's something that's gathering a lot of attention and something which warrants just being uh, thrashed out a little bit more uh, Michelle before we move on any thoughts that you have on the extent of the, the Hutch and GSOC coverage in today's papers? Well, I think it's it's very extensive, the coverage. And I suppose I'd concur with Peter, just even how it even arose or came about just seems quite bizarre that someone would go in and say, well, actually, you know, I was that probably one of the most high profile criminals in the country. He was acquitted the day before um, at a really high profile trial that you were at their their, mm. their party. For me, I just think... It, I suppose it's a rather strange way and as Peter you know Peter pointed out I think another actually interesting by Ali Bracken in the Sunday Independent that only two out of 22 detectives in Pier Street Garda Station have undertaken advanced driver training courses meaning they can use the taxi lanes I think that's pretty significant and yeah. that you have a large proportion of them who would rather walk because it takes them so long to get around the city and I suppose it puts into perspective, you know, the challenges we have in policing. You've guards who are leaving. Mm. Uh, you know, if you listen to what's coming out of the the conferences recently, they're 
they're leaving the force in droves pre-retirement age, perhaps reflective as Peter mentioned, a lot of the TDs and, you know, who are young and in their prime mm. also leaving Fine Gael mm. and not standing again. Um, before we, we go on, a couple of lighter mm. pieces to finish up. Um, Peter, you two were not short of money before uh, the events of the last couple of weeks anyway, but they're particularly not short of money now. Eye-watering, Gavin. This is eye-watering. You two, apparently, we know they have they have a residency in Las Vegas. Uh, son, uh, Larry Mullen, I think, who's not able to play because he's recovering from an injury. So mm. they have a nif- different uh, drummer recruited for that. But uh, tickets for their uh, Las Vegas residency, which is going to take place in September, October and November, 17 dates, went on sale. Uh, on Friday I think and they sold out in seconds apparently uh, 300,000 tickets they reckon that you 2 will make up to a hundred million dollars uh, profit as a result profit, of these not just gross profit you know, um, so those of us of a certain age can remember uh, Elvis and the One Piece in Las Vegas and that's what we associate with gigs you yeah. 2 in Las Vegas I, I can't see it I just don't think it's very rock and roll they're certainly not suffering for their art mm. anyway <laughs> Gavin I don't uh, think they are but when, it's it's, it's it's incredible, really. Yeah. It's incredible that the eye-watering sums of money uh, to do a residency. Mm. You know, it's, it's just... Uh, well, I can understand where the money comes from. I went, <laughs> I went to go and see Britney in, in Vegas during residency. Okay. Not right. cheap. Uh, oh, I have li- I'm, I'm already getting the wind-up f- finger from my producer on the other side of the glass. In 20 seconds, Michelle, the reason why we should be concerned about a Eurovision record. Uh, well, the Scandinavians are looking to knock us off our perch. We have seven wins. Sweden is catching up. Uh, we all know the Eurovision is coming in a couple of weeks and there's also uh, Mick Lynch has announced a strike the day of the Eurovision final <laughs> for anyone in Liverpool. There'll be a transport strike which will be challenging. I do think, to be honest, Sweden will probably catch up with us. Ireland okay. hasn't been quite successful in the no. past. You know, in the recent past anyway, we've barely, we haven't gotten to the final I don't know how many years. 27 so. years since we won it. Yeah. 27 years. years. We haven't gotten past semi-final stage mm. in a considerable amount of time. So, you know, yeah. I'd say they'll get there definitely. And anyone in Liverpool for that weekend just be yeah. aware of just, the just be aware. Uh, go book a taxi <laughs> or rent a car or something uh, that's all the time we, all we've got time for Peter Leonard barrister and presenter of the Fifth Court podcast and Michelle Murphy research and policy analyst at Social Justice Ireland thank you both very much for joining us On the Record with Gavin Riley, Sunday morning at 11 brought to you by PwC a dedicated private business team built around you it all adds up to the new equation on News Talk.